the pen is mightier than the sword. My tagline is your voice heard through the written word. That is what I love to provide for my clients, content writing, blog writing, and other social media or marketing initiatives they need in the written word to promote what makes them better and different from others in their profession. Creating a robust narrative that fully captures their why has everything to do with the content that promotes their brand image and area of expertise. From pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's the Communication Commandments, a presentation of Boston Edits. Now here's your host, Kim Calvi. Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to this segment of Communication Commandments. Joining us today, we have another great guest, Mike Penzo of Penzo Consulting, who will spend time sharing with us what his business is known for, how that service benefits its clients, and what makes his expertise better and different from others in the same vertical. So let's launch right into it. Mike, thank you for being here today. Thank you, Kim, for inviting me. Happy to have you. So my first question, rather a lengthy one, so please be patient. What is Penzo Consulting? I noticed that you have a lot of post-nominal letters such as PG, CPG, and LSP after your name. Can you please tell us about your business and what those designations stand for? Sure. So Penzo Consulting is a sole practitioner environmental consulting firm. And I've been in operation since 2012. My post-nominal letters, well, the most important one is the LSP. And an LSP is a Massachusetts licensed site professional. And the name of my certificate, the, the title of my certificate is licensed hazardous waste site cleanup professional. Mm-hmm. So I am one of about 500 people in the state who is licensed to assess and clean up contaminated sites. Sites contaminated with soil, soil contamination, groundwater contamination, it could be indoor air. PG, I am a licensed professional geologist in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And CPG, I'm a certified professional geologist through the American Institute of Professional Geologists. And that is a national certification. Oh, okay, very good. So now I, I think we all understand what contamination is, but what exactly is geology or geomorphology? All right. So well, when you think geology, everybody thinks rocks, but uh, mm. really geology is the study of the earth. And that okay. can be anything really above on the surface or below the earth. And my mm. specialty is hydrogeology, hydro for water. And I do a lot of my work deals with contaminated groundwater. And I spent the last 41 years assessing and cleaning up contaminated groundwater. Oh, my. Okay. So you've been busy. It's really the study of the surface of the earth. And that's really important because any piece of property, you deal with issues related to geomorphology. Most of the area in New England has been really modified greatly by glacial activity. And if you dig a hole in the ground, you're going to hit something that the glacier had moved. It could be glacial till, or if you go down to Cape Cod, it's a beach sand. Well, that's from a glacial outwash, sorted sand and gravel. Wow. Okay. I didn't expect that. That's interesting. Okay. We'll have to touch on that some other time. Can you talk about though, you mentioned, okay, so geomorphology above, above ground level and below ground level. So I would assume that New England, you know, there's, we're a heavily concentrated area, especially along the coast, Boston, Framingham, Worcester, those areas, even Providence, Rhode Island, up areas up in Maine. Can you talk, though, about the, the different residential projects that you've worked on and what the process is for residential 
project? Because it sounds like with some of these ships and contamination that you may have had to advise somebody, you know, not to purchase land based on your findings. Is that, is that something specific that you've had to deal with? And, you know, additionally, what about things like, you know, things that make up a home, like home heating oil or anything like that. What can you say about any of that? Well, let's start with home heating oil. I was called uh, really out of the blue by a very nice uh, person who had a home in actually in Newton. And uh, she was told that her fuel tank had leaked and had emptied out into the ground. Now, when something like that happens, the fire department gets involved, the Mass Department of Environmental Protection gets involved, and basically the person, uh, the owner of the property is on the hook to clean the problem, and this can be extremely expensive. I was just about to say. Yeah, I mean, this can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, my. So she called me up. She was, she was a little bit panicking about it. So one of the first things I do is I say, all right, well, let me come over and, and, and I try to put her at ease because I, I try to be very, I don't get excited about things. I try to be really calming and mm-hmm. get them calming so they can really think clearly. Mm-hmm. And this particular site, <clears throat> so it was an alleged spill of 200 gallons of fuel oil. And the way they found out about it was their tank got, uh, was empty. And they didn't, and this was actually during the summer. And this heating oil, actually, it's kind of unusual. You know, most um, water heaters are heated with natural gas. This one happened to be heated with fuel oil. Mm-hmm. So what happened, they had no hot water. So they called the oil company. They came and said, oh, you're out of oil. And mm-hmm. you're, either your tank or your line must have leaked. So you need to call the fire department and the state. So they did that. Well, so, uh, when she called me in, I looked at it. Now, the first thing you would think of when you have a, a leak, yeah. whether it's underground or above ground, is you're, it's going to smell. It's going to mm-hmm. really smell of oil. Well, mm-hmm. there was absolutely no smell, and that made oh. me. And, and I've done, I've done, I'd say hundreds of these. Yeah, of course. And it was so I was suspicious, and I said, well. <clears throat> All right, let's do a couple of things. The first thing is, let's make let's see if it actually is underground. So we set up a, a drilling program to actually go in with a very small drill rig, handheld drill rig, mm-hmm. and let's drill down beneath the floor and let's take a few samples and let's see if there's any contamination. And at the same time, I suggested because I don't smell anything, let's go back to your oil company and let's get their inventory and their, and, and let's figure out when the last fill up was and let's go from there. So we drilled, I think we drilled six to seven holes and this, we got this done within a half a day. The mass department of environmental protection, they came out, I'll, I'll call it DEP mm-hmm. and uh, they observed the drilling and uh, we took soil samples and we screen them with, and by screening, we use a meter, which is called a photoionization detector. And that's basically, it sniffs volatile compounds like oil. All right. And so we collected, let's say we collected about oh, 20 or 30 samples and we screened them all. And we really didn't, we, we got virtually no readings. We took four or five samples and we sent them to the lab just to confirm that there was no contamination. And the lab did confirm that there was no contamination. 
Really? So then, hmm. Yes. So then we went, we looked at the inventory records. And according to the inventory, I think it was August 7th, they had supposedly filled up the tank. And on the inventory records, it says it typically takes 24 minutes to fill an oil tank. Well, looking at the at the records and all of these all of these trucks have GPS and they can be tracked oh. exactly where they are and how long they are. Well, this particular truck was only on the street for eight minutes, so it would have been impossible for them to fill it up. So <laughs> that was that was a clue. So so between so we had multiple lines of evidence that a spill never occurred. And and I was able to prepare a report to the state and we closed out the site and DEP he was satisfied that there was no release. And my client, who also happened to be a lawyer, we went back to the <laughs> oil company <clears throat> to recover one all of my costs. Mm-hmm. And it cost about, my costs were a little bit, oh, I think there, there were a few thousand dollars. And so mm-hmm. she recovered the cost from the oil company and the cost of the fuel oil that she never received. And uh, so she was a very happy client. Wow. Now you mentioned that's an about, interesting story. Yeah. So uh, that's one of the ones that I really like really helping people. And I, I mm. really feel like I made a difference doing that. Mm-hmm. I also, it, you know, if people, if a person or a couple have a piece of property they want to purchase, they've come to me. Actually, my family's come to me and among others. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've asked me to take a look and see if they should buy this piece of property, if there's any kind of environmental impairment or anything else. And really, I do this for all my clients. So the first thing I'll do is I will go to a series of databases. The Mass Department of Environmental Protection, DP, has a mm-hmm. database and lists all the sites that have had releases of contamination throughout the state. So I'll punch in their address, and then I'll look at surrounding addresses and see if there is any potential environmental impairment. And if mm-hmm. there is, I'll tell them. Okay. Uh, I'll also look at other databases. I'll look at the floodplain, see if the, if the property's in a floodplain, to see if there's any other type of potential impairment. And I'll make a recommendation to them, you know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I'll make a recommendation and I'll let them make the decision whether or not they should buy the property. Okay, those and, are interesting stories, both of them. I mean, on the one hand, somebody's calling you because they're in a panicked situation and then somebody else is calling you because they're in a fact-finding and you know fact-finding you know right. endeavor and in both instances you're able to tap into your resources and you know get everybody the information they need to provide them the information that is going to help them make a decision one way or the other in the latter case and in the former case allay their fears and even win them some award money from the sounds of it you're dealing with an attorney, you know, those are compelling stories. Now, so, so what make, what that makes me think of too, is that if anybody were to, you know, to buy a property, maybe they don't, maybe homeowners don't think of this or, you know, people who are looking to buy a home, maybe they should add that to their checklist that they should give you a quick call. Absolutely. Is that that fact? Yeah. Okay. Well, a member of my family wanted me to look at a piece of property and I looked at it and as it turned out, right across the street was a closed landfill. Now, landfills, mm-hmm. old landfills, especially if they're online, they will tend to leak what's called leachate into the groundwater, and they potentially can contaminate if you have a drinking water well. Well, yeah. right. this house had a drinking water well. <clears throat> the landfill was across the street, 
and mm-hmm. I told them not to buy it. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. they bought it. And did they have problems later uh, of one sort or another? They, oh, they had. They did have some problems, not major problems, but you know, in retrospect, when they go to sell that property, having a landfill across the street diminishes the value of the property. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, again, when people consider buying property and they happen to do their due diligence about where this property is, they should, anybody should give you a quick call just to say, can you check this out? Right. Cross that off the list that the the property might have some issues that, okay, very good. So, I mean, in terms of the consumer, that's, those are excellent tips. One other thing on that, on the, uh, the fuel oil, most people that have fuel don't know that there is a law in the books that <clears throat> requires your insurer to provide environmental, an environmental liability rider called limited escaped fuel remediation coverage. Now, this, now, the insurance companies don't have to tell you, but if you ask them, they, they've got to give it to you. And hmm. it costs less. I have it. I have a fuel oil tank. I have it. It costs less than $100 a year. And it's for $50,000 worth of first party, that is, cleanup of soil at your home, and mm-hmm. another 200000 in third-party liability coverage that if the contamination got off-site or got into the groundwater. Now, this is something that, and I, as an LSP, I'm a member of the LSP Association, this is mm-hmm. something that we've been trying to fight, and actually we've got a, an improvement to that law that we're pushing through the legislature right now to force the insurance companies to automatically provide this as an insurance rider in the homeowner's policies. Wow. Well, that certainly seems worthwhile to me. I mean, for not a lot of money, it could save somebody from potential ruin, financial ruin. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Well, good luck. I think that that's important and you'll have to keep us posted on the development of that. Now, you must, besides residential, you must work with industrial commercial sites as well. So for anybody listening, what can you tell us about that, where your services would be beneficial to a client like that? Well, typically anytime somebody is buying a piece of, of commercial or industrial property, uh, the bank's going to require them to do an environmental uh, site assessment. Oh, and okay. it's, In the vernacular, it's called an ASTM phase one. I don't do a lot of those, but I do. If it's a complicated site, I will get involved. The simple site can be done. There are companies that only do that. I tend to, with my experience, I tend to get involved with more complex ones. But And this is something that has to be done before a lender will write a mortgage for a piece of property. Mm-hmm. But also, I get involved after the fact. I've had a site I've been working on for a few years now that is down in on the South coast and mm-hmm. it's an auto parts dealer <clears throat> and uh, they found a petroleum contamination in the groundwater on their property. And uh, the mass DP got involved and I was hired with, with a colleague of mine and his company to do an environmental site assessment. So we installed 10 borings and with these borings, we put in a series of monitoring wells mm-hmm. and that gives us the ability to sample both the soil and the groundwater and also determine the direction of groundwater flow. Now, this is important because this will tell you where, where the contamination, groundwater contamination might be coming from. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in this particular one, we found we, we did find soil and we did find groundwater contamination. And we found that the um, groundwater was flowing from a property next door that was another auto parts store, but... <clears throat> 
20 years previously, they had had a major spill and a, a major cleanup was done. So hmm. again, um, accumulating uh, multiple lines of evidence, I was able to determine that, hey, this guy is responsible and my client was not responsible. And I've filed what's called a downgradient property status, mm-hmm. which while the owner is still responsible, it allows him to go after the property owner upgrading and, and that's an ongoing project right now. Oh, okay. All right. So there, there are multiple parties involved in this too. I mean, in, in any type of a situation that you're dealing with. Okay. So that makes me think of super funds. Don't ask me how I know what super funds are, but have you ever been called on to, to participate in super fund litigation? Well, I've worked on three different Superfund sites. Now, uh, just an explanation of what Superfund is. Mm-hmm. Superfund is also known as CERCLA, which the, the long name is the Comprehensive Environmental Response, Compensation, and Liability Act. Mm-hmm. And it's a federally funded program to uh, assess and clean up federally regulated contaminated sites. And I've worked as a consultant on three of these sites. But, and I, I haven't really done litigation support on Superfund sites, but I am involved right now in a couple of litigation support cases and uh, where I'll be acting as an expert witness. The mm-hmm. one that I'm involved right now is a landfill site and it's in Northern New England. And the landfill, we're contending the landfill has leaked, is this really nasty contaminated liquid into mm-hmm. the groundwater. And then from the groundwater, it discharged into a major river contaminating oh, it. So, so mm-hmm. my client is suing the landfill owner under the Clean Water Act. And that's also an ongoing project. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, you have to come back and visit us and tell us how that shapes up. So now, what are some not so obvious ways, though, that the average citizen can do their part to protect the environment? You've talked a lot about contamination above ground and ground. I'm sure there are things that we all can do to do our part, really, to preserve the environment. Absolutely. Well, in in addition to environmental consulting, I'm also an adjunct uh, faculty member uh, at Northeastern University, and I've taught in the past at a couple of other universities. And what I tell my students is, if, if we don't do something now, by the time they get to be my age, the world is going to be very different, and it's going to be a real, there are going to be all sorts of environmental issues that are going to be problematic. So reduce, reuse, and recycle the three R's. And those are the big things. Anybody can do these. By reducing the amount of stuff we buy, we reduce the amount of trash. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're taught from the time we're, we're little kids sitting in front of the TV watching cartoons on Saturday mornings right. to buy, buy, buy. Yeah. And, you know, and a lot of the things we buy don't last. They're not high quality. I recommend if you're going to buy something, buy something that's high quality and will last. And don't buy new stuff just when old stuff when old stuff is still usable. For example, okay. I've got an iPhone 7, mm-hmm. and it works perfect. It does everything I need it to do, but I'm not going to upgrade <laughs> yeah. it until it breaks. You know, I'm, yeah. eligible, I'm eligible to upgrade, but why? Okay. So by reusing, limit the amount of trash that gets thrown away. You know, and if you do want to buy something new, well, the old thing, don't just throw it in the trash recycle it or donate it. There are a lot of things you can do, but it's a matter of thinking about things. Think before you act. We tend to do a lot of impulse buying, which sure. is not a good thing. Okay. Now, so that makes me think of a question that I have about 
your philosophy. I know that we've talked a little bit about that before you and I have. So it sounds like you, know, you say, you know, uh, re- reuse, recycle. Does that factor into the philosophy you carry with you? Well, it does. But so I have a business card and mm-hmm. here's my business card. And on the back of the business card, nice. I've written, I'm just going to read this really quickly. The three rules for being an effective LSP. Number one, protect human mm-hmm. health and safety in the environment. And this kind of rolls into the three R's. But the second is to follow the regulations, the Massachusetts Contingency Plan, which is the regulations that I have to deal with as an LSP, and local, state, and federal laws mm-hmm. and regulations. And number three, advocate for your client. And these are the mm-hmm. rules. This is the correct order. Any other way leads to trouble. Now, you think, well, wait a minute. If I'm going to hire you. I want you to be my advocate before anything else. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not the type of client I want because the important thing is when you have an environmental problem to recognize that you've got to take care of it and you've got to mm-hmm. determine what the issue is and, and, and solve the problem and it's got to follow the regulations. So that's kind of my philosophy. I think it's a good one. So that, you know, for my last question then, your, who are your ideal clients? It sounds like you've worked with real estate developers. You've had to, whether it's commercial, residential. It sounds like you've had to work with, you know, you've worked with law firms and other environmental consulting firms of one sort or another. Who is it that you're looking for for clients? Well, I always say my ideal client mm-hmm. is an intelligent, educated client that and, mm. and is a good listener. Okay, um, good. This is a client I can explain technical details and they make an informed decision. That being said, my law experience is both an environmental consultant and a university instructor. I have the ability to take complex technical issues and explain it in a way that a lay person can understand and make an informed decision. And I, I try very hard to do this and not be condescending. And I, and I think I succeed. I think uh, you do too. My upbringing made me appreciate that everyone should be respected no matter who they are. Mm-hmm. And that's my Italian upbringing. I know you have the same. And uh, yep. so very good. Okay. So now where can these ideal clients find you? I am based in Newton, Massachusetts. And my phone number is uh, area code 617-686-1139. My email address is mpenzo at penzoconsulting.com. And I have a website, penzoconsulting.com. And I'm also on Penzo Consulting's on LinkedIn. Oh, very good. Okay. So many ways people can find you when, yes. they, when they need you, because there sounds like everybody's going to at some point, right? Oh, very here. good. <laughs> we know where to find you. All right, Mike. Well, thank you so much uh, for the privilege of your time today and sharing with us your story. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. I'd like to invite you back at some point. Sound good? Sounds very good. Okay. Well, again, thank you so much today for your time today. Before we conclude, I'd like to thank my producer, David Yass, podfather extraordinaire of the Boston Podcast Network for making this show available on podcast outlets everywhere. Everybody, thank you for tuning in. My name is Kim Calvi. I'm your host of Communication Commandments with Kim Calvi. I'm also the owner of Boston Edits, LLC. My email address is kim at bostonedits.com, spelled just like it sounds. 
My website is www.bostonedits.com. I have a profile on LinkedIn under my name, Kimberly Calvi. Those are the best places to find me. But if you Google Boston Edits, I take up the entire first page of a search engine results page. Thank you so much for tuning in, everybody. Have a great day.